How do I know that you're going to be able to do that? Hey. Hey, Miriam. You excited? Yeah. What's going on? I thought you were, like, interviewing him for a second. We, over. Ha- we always keep the tape running. It's our new method. We have a postmodern method. So it's recording now? It's recording right now. Oh, here we go. Right on time. Good news. Hi. Nice to meet you, Yeah, we're ready to go. Hi, Sam. Good to see you. I didn't know you would be here. I'm Jamal Kafadar, and you're listening to Ottoman History Podcast. Jalabın bir şair yaratmış iki cihan aresinde bakacak didar görünür ol şairin kenarısı. Nagihan ol şaire vardım, anı ben yapılır gördüm. Ben dahi bile yapıldım taşı toprak aresi. My Lord has created a city between two worlds. One sees the beloved if one looks at the edge of that city. I came upon that city and saw it being built. I too was built with it amidst stone and earth. Well, we've already done the introduction, so you know what this is, and you know who that was, but I'll say it again. It's the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Sam Dolby. And that was Jamal Kafadar reading Hajibai Ramveli's poem, from which Kafadar's 1995 book, Between Two Worlds, takes its title. Jamal Kafadar is the Vehbi Koch Professor of Turkish Studies at Harvard University. And this episode is a special episode. Usually we talk with people about their research, but in this one, we take a broader view. Miriam Patton, Chris Graydon, and I spoke with Kafadar about his path to becoming an Ottoman historian and his intellectual trajectory more generally. We've divided the conversation into two parts, and this one, part one, covers his upbringing and education, including everything from the Balkan accents of the Istanbul neighborhood he grew up in, to the way his love for film has shaped his historical vision. We all owe so much to different encounters other than our books and things, obviously, that we don't probably pay enough respect and attention to those. I love committing poetry to memory. My grandfather, who died when I was nine, had many things in mind for my future. One of them was that I would be a Hafiz. And I started it. I was very good at it, committing memory to memory. And I did uh, several pages to his friends for him to impress his friends, of course, that his grandchild could do this and stuff. So maybe that's when the committing to memory stuff became a pleasure for him. So, you know, Hafiz is somebody who commits the Quran to memory, but who commits things to memory. Unfortunately, I don't have the musical side of a Hafiz, like Evdiyachilib. He was a Hafiz, and he was a real musician, not me. But Hafiz in Turkish is also a nerd, <laughs> somebody who just memorizes, I'm sure, You know, all academics have some of that to them, to some degree. Uh, otherwise, what? My father, my early childhood, he was a manifaturaji. In fact, the full name of the shop is of another era. Manifatura tuhafiye ve züccaciye. 
Uh, we sold buttons, zippers, uh, ribbons, some cloth, things of that sort. People would make sewing home textiles with. Manufactura. Toafie is souvenir from Arabic. In Zujajie, you would sell teacups and things of that sort. Glassware, yeah, 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 exactly. So in the early 60s, before Özal and liberalization, Archelik was created, and my father got a Bayilik, an agency to sell Archelik products in the neighborhood and expanded the shop. So he would sell Beyazeshya, yani refrigerators and washing machines. But if you're a Bayi of Archelik, you can only sell Archelik. That's what being a buy is. But it probably it's learned from an American style of doing business. Uh, and he was the Archelik buy in the neighborhood. Rami, uphill from the hills of Eyüp, which is where I was born and went to elementary school. Then we moved to Fatih. Uh, but he kept his shop until his self-retirement in Rami. That was our home base. And Did you work in the shop? Yeah. I mean... Uh, I enjoyed doing the little things, learning about colors. That was the most fascinating. I still work on colors. Names of the colors of the different ribbons were fascinating. I was just learning nefti, the dark green, black green of the oil that comes out of this, yeah. Petrol, uh, etc. You know, those kinds of things were fascinating to me. And showing off, reading very early, reading... You know, those kinds of things. It's a social environment, a dükkan. I've mm-hmm. always appreciated the fact that after, for instance, Zati, the great divan poet mm-hmm. of the early 16th century, Su Yong and Walter Andrews both worked on Zati. Zati is a great man. He had a dükkan in Beyazıt Square. He did mostly fall and tulsum, those kinds of things. But it's a dükkan. <laughs> and it, and it, you, you can read his memoir. You can, no, you can read the Letaif about Zati the funny tales, anecdotes about Zati. And uh, many of the stories take place either in his shop or in the shops of his neighbors. And they're all social spaces, the barber shop especially. So the Kyan was a social space. I learned a lot, counting, multiplying, those kinds of things, little transactions. I enjoyed it. And uh, you had uh, Archilic body thereafter. Yeah, that's another kind of world where you learn a lot about the va- appreciate, you know, ordinary people with their quotidian matters can be so much fun. <laughs> and you learn so much from them. Like what kinds of things? Many of them, the people in the neighborhood were mostly uh, Balkan immigrants. Mohajir, Majir, we said. Pronunciation that was more common, Majir, but same way. They had many tales making fun of each other's accents. And it makes you think about language. Now I realize that different constructions of sentences by some folks were due to the fact that they were actually speakers of some Slavic language. And they kept the syntax but applied it to Turkish. I can give you examples of this language. Yapirus tamir hem gizli pençe. This is a shoemaker, shoe repairer. Now, Yapirus Tamir. Hem Gizli Pençe. Şimdi Gizli Pençe is, uh, what do you call this? Soul. Gizli. And to the soul, when I was growing up, we added metal so that it doesn't wear out so easily. Mm. Metal Pençe. Mm-hmm. 
And if you didn't want to go chak, 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 chak. Gizli pençe. They made gizli pençe. Stuck into the soul. <laughs> that was a good craftsman, right? But the sentence in Turkish syntax doesn't it? Yapıyoruz tamir hem gizli pençe. Do you know what syntax that is? That, that like what language I, I don't. I, I, it must be given the guy. I know where he's from. He's from Kosovo. So it's uh, probably Albanian. So within that diversity, I guess one learned. My mother sometimes, I mean, my own parents spoke very good Turkish. Now you're reminding me. But my mother sometimes had problems and they always made fun of her. Uh, you know, she could say program. She always said program. So, you know, jokingly, one would say, dilini eşekarısı soksun. May the big bee, you know, sting your tongue. Yes, so I, I, one does see ways of offending, putting folks down. In my elementary school, I could see some of that based on based on all kinds of things. Class, gender, certainly, needless to point out. And I noticed that, you know, history can be a tool for that, for that kind of oppression. That's, that's unfortunately very much a part of the world. You know, imagine Alevis in Turkey fought for so many years to just get a paragraph about the fact that there are Alevis in the country. We're talking of at least 10%. And the Ministry of Education compromised at some point, you know, when by putting a picture of, say, Haji Bektaş in there. Is that a compromise, really? Haji Bektaş is one of the giants of, you know, Turkish, Anatolian, and more cultural heritage anyway. So it should be there to begin with, so on and so forth. Women, blacks, this and that, you know, in high school textbooks, it's easier to observe, but it gets subtler, it gets far more refined and sophisticated and maybe all the more dangerous when it's in the hands of great academics. Political discussions, Turkey was getting more and more politicized in the late 60s. Political discussions were my elder brother, five years older than I, uh, was going to the university and one had started to experience boycott, grève, those kinds of things debated in those environments or in the coffee house in Rami, which gave me a sense of what a lively debating environment any of those places could be. My mother, too, uh, a big source. I read many women's novels, thanks to her. She had filibitis on her legs, and the doctor had recommended going to the Bursa Kaplıcaları. She's from a village of Bursa, anyway. She's also Balkan immigrants. They had been settled in Tirilya, a beautiful village. Have you been? Tirilya is breathtaking. So beautiful. An uh, old Greek village. Population exchange, they come from Macedonia, not Greece, settled. And that's where she's from. But then she married to Istanbul, Evlendi. <laughs> that's the way she married to Istanbul. <laughs> and um, she, because of her condition, we would go to Kaplija, the hot baths in Bursa. And uh, my father kept the shop. So I went with her. She was reading all these Kerem Nadir, Angelique, 
translated French novels, you know, Angelique. <laughs> then they made movies of them and they became very popular. And uh, I think that's why I got so very interested in Asiya Hatun's Dream Diary. It gave me a sense of a literary pleasure of a sort that I knew from reading what's called women's literature, speaking of another social environment, of another kind of, full of another kind of sensibility. I mean, Rami and the Balkan immigrant community there was mostly secular, mm. but pious. And to me, that combination of secularity and piety was normal. It was okay to have an alcoholic beverage once in a while. And some people in the larger family had were known as Akshamji, but that's who they were. You know, they had a glass of raka every evening, but at Ramazan, they would not. You know, then you knew of somebody who drank quite a bit and had a non-halal activities, let's put it that way, and then goes on the hajj and comes back, grows a beard and gives up on everything. This was all very normal. But then going to the Friday prayer was a must. I, I don't remember anyone really pushing you to it. It was just the, the social environment that gave you a sense that you must, uh, kind of a thing, which, which is the way it must have been much of the time in most places. Uh, one could go on and on. Obviously, this is such a big issue for Turkey. But in general, in Turkey, that kind of thing changed a lot. It's been changing. Going visiting mosques with Gülru especially for scholarly reasons as well as personal and, and aesthetic uh, to go visit mosques for now nearly 40 years on our own or together. We've experienced a big transformation toward more of a segregated, closed off and difficult experience. Not everywhere still, fortunately, but you know, in the late 70s, 80s, you were welcome anywhere as a, you know, Istanbul woman or boy coming in with a camera and just, or with foreign friends doing things, talking in English, yeah. Do I sound like I have nostalgia? Honestly. <laughs> not really, no. no I like I my time. I, I mean, these comments, I think, are not driven, triggered by nostalgia. Let me put it that way. I, I may feel nostalgia, but is this observation nostalgic re-reading of the past is the question I was trying to yeah, preempt. I was doing two things very intently and thought I could do them maybe in the future when I, was in, when I was a teenager. And one was writing poetry, one was uh, playing, acting in plays. I could have gone on, I guess, you know, doing it well is another thing, but I may have. This was when you're still... Young, 17, young 18, yeah, 19, yeah. thereabouts. What kind of plays? <laughs> the last one I played was Galileo Galilei, Bertolt, <laughs> Bertolt Brecht. The first one I played was... Uh, I was in German high school, junior high school, Istanbul Arkeklis, German-speaking, German-teaching high school, you know, next to the Iranian consulate there. Mm. I was one of the voices from behind. I didn't do any acting, really. Uh, yelling, it was Faust, mm -hmm. but simplified. And I was telling Faust, Faust, hüte dich vor der Magie. 
fahre fort in deinen Studien oder du bist auf ewig verloren. <lacht> so, that was my first speaking acting. <lacht> sort of. And then I played the Russian ballet teacher in You Can't Take It With You. James Lovett is a legend, Robert College, English-American literature teacher. Mm-hmm. And he was also a director of the plays. And he discovered that, I don't know how he came to that, but that I could pronounce, that I could do the Russian accent quite well, which may have something to do with the fact that my parents spoke Macedonian and my grandparents, mm-hmm. and I heard it all the time, though they never taught me. I think the phonology seeps in <laughs> better than the syntax <laughs> if, if it's never taught to you in, at that sure, age. Sure. So anyway, so I, I was doing my little rebishka. That, that was my main line. <laughs> <laughs> so you can't take it with you to Galileo Galilei. That was the end of my career, the peak of my acting. <laughs> <laughs> did, you know, did you know at the time that it was the last, the last one you'd be in? Or did it just happen? Sort of, yeah. No, no, I was really, no, I was quite, you know, how people are cat or dog people. There are also cinema or theater people. I was at that time moving quickly from cinema, theater to cinema rather. Yeah. Obviously, it's not an either-or for millions of people, but for some people, it was either theater or cinema. And I was 17, 18, 19, thereabouts, I was moving to cinema. One of the major cultural institutions for some of us in Istanbul at that time was the Cinematheque. It's, mm-hmm. it's a legend. Onat Kutlar, the founder, whom I later met, he unfortunately died at the end of a bombing incident at the cafe under the Marmara Hotel in Taksim Square. At that time, actually, we, we, we had planned with him to write a script for Sultan Jem. We can come back to that. So the cinema interest has always been there. And I still have the synopsis for the Sultan Jem film, which he read. And then we agreed that we would the next summer, just the New Year's Eve was the bombing incident. Mm. And it, anyway, I won't go into the politics of it. Uh, and the next summer we were to do the writing together. And he passed away. But the Cinematheque, when I didn't know Anat Kutler as a person then, he was just a great towering figure of intellectual life, and we were high school students, was just fabulous. It was a fabulous place. Uh, they just know what they were, knew what they were doing. I watched all of the Fassbinder movies. <laughs> in between 1971 and 73, before I came to America, before there was any show on Fassbinder yet here in the United States, because it took time for German cinema to catch, as you know. Mm-hmm. In any case, so in high school, I was getting interested through the Cinematheque. I was in general in very in deeply involved as at least audience and reader in movie, in literary criticism, poetry, etc. thought I would study philosophy when I came to study here in Hamilton College in 1973 when the Vietnam War was still on. And we being there was so odd at first. Then I loved it. I, I started to like winters and snowscapes. <laughs> and I, I, I still do. I cherish it. But it was very odd after Istanbul, you can imagine. The college itself was great. I mean, the, you know, this is 73, Nixon is on... Uh, Watergate is on, the Vietnam War is on, there's one TV, one of the halls, people watch it in a group, and t- 
teachers are, professors are there too, cursing at Nixon and saying things unthinkable from the very authoritarian Turkey I was coming from. Unthinkable, that kind of relationship with the professor, first of all. And then both of you, you know, <laughs> yelling at TV, at the president, my goodness, and there's a war. Come on, I, we knew that, of course, there's a big anti-Vietnam movement, but that it could be expressed at that level. So that, for instance, uh, was educational in the best sense. Mm -hmm. Wow, mm -hmm. good kind of <laughs> feeling is that one has with it. Students had stereos. There was great music, of course. It was a time of good music what in America. Friends stereos mostly, but they well, did we listen to Led Zeppelin, Pink Crimson. One of my friends from upstate New York was a fan of Jay Giles' band. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I knew nothing about that before coming to America, but I learned. <laughs> uh, Bob Dylan, whom we already knew much of while in Turkey. He'd already you know, made the rounds throughout the world. John Baez and Bob Dylan had. A friend of mine was into jazz. He took me to a Dizzy Gillespie live concert in Philadelphia. And we always hitchhiked in those years. American friends and us, 73. Said, hitchhiking became dangerous or simply not done towards the end of the 70s. But 73, it was very... On a good sunny day like this, yeah, one would see several people hitchhiking. And, uh, <laughs> also, Hamil that Hamilton College had books like Jamal Pasha's memoirs. Unthinkable. Why, why the hell, I said. And then several European travelers' books on the other. So I read some, thanks to a good, simple but good college library up in north, northern New York State, I read some... Uh, 19th century stuff on the Ottomans. That you didn't That I knew nothing, before. that I didn't know existed, really, yes. And um, that was also, I must say, an eye-opening kind of thing. Uh, and, uh, but I was also doing a double major, which I didn't finish, in film studies. Oh. And my film instructor was a terrific guy, passed away in the meantime, but he worked with Coppola as the boom man on <laughs> several films, including Apocalypse Now. He really knew his craft. And from him, I, I got the appreciation, which I did not violate the Cinematheque, the appreciation of the craftsmanship of film, which later, I think, helped me a good deal in terms of the way I think about history. But we can talk about that too, the editing of it, uh, the laborious process of working towards something while you know much of it will be cut. Coming up, more of our interview with Jamal Kafadar as we talk about some of the historians and teachers who inspired him and some of the events that shaped him. That's in a minute when our show continues. While developing all these interests, I was reading historical things of historical interest, but not necessarily with an eye to become a historian. 
nor was I much interested in the more technical, academic kinds of history at that time. Mm -hmm. Like what, did, what did that mean to you at the time? Like what, what stood as technical academic history? That's Barkan. Okay. Yeah. I mean, not that you necessarily have to name names. Yeah. <laughs> the, the academic, the Turkish academic uh, historical work, which I knew was of great merit and stuff, but it, it, it wasn't intellectually that appealing. I, I was more interested in the philosophical questions and stuff. And I uh, eventually, along the way, within a few years, figured out that dealing with those philosophical questions or literary critical types of questions might be, that those interests might be pursued through historical work as well, that this can be a matter of greatest intellectual pleasure, which is what I thought was missing in the academic work, which is probably because I did not appreciate it sufficiently at that time. A few readings, a few inspiring readings came at the right moment for me, late 70s, just early grad school. Uh, and that would include uh, Brodel and Natalie Davis. Oh, history can be done like this? It's also a moment when the very obvious givens and the truths of the Republic, going back to a bit anecdotal now, were being, were being questioned, were being dismantled, not from uh, the more obvious, say, uh, anti-Kemalist opposition or anti-Republican, which is always there, and some of it also developing uh, in more sophisticated ways in time. But, I mean, re readings like Tampunar and Ozatai were very crucial for intellectuals of my generation to think beyond the givens. Mm -hmm. It needs to be ironical and satirical and to enjoy the irony and satire and the parody of the world that we were living in and we were given. Uh, and the history books were of that world, and then uh, some readings enabled us to think beyond it. Ozata is just amazing, I have to say. Many, you, you go back to my generation, you talk to people moving into social sciences, humanities, with, with some intellectual ambition, and he will be there in the in the biography someplace as a major, as a critical reading. I moved to the Institute of Islamic Studies at McGill, where I thought I could perhaps do Islamic thought and also Ottoman history or history of Ottoman thought. Didn't know really, I was just trying to find my way, in Turkish, <laughs> just touching the different yeah. parts of the body of the elephant and trying to make sense of it. Kind of a thing. Were there any other fields of history that sort of you started to draw upon in your work? Or was it always was it Ottoman history from the beginning, from the get go? Well, Islamic history. I really Islamic wanted first. I I found Ottoman history as it was being done then. I think things have changed a bit under certain influences and dynamics. Not sufficiently steeped in the medieval Islamic context or background mm -hmm. that it was for reasons having to do with Republican history, it was just too divorced from, from things having to do with religious learning, religious sciences, piety of people in general. But it's not just true then I discovered of this field. In general, you know, religion mattered very little in the larger framework of the social sciences uh, for a while in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. In the 
I, I think the Iranian revolution here played a big, big role in my life. I know in that of many friends, like it came right in the middle of my grad school. Right? But the Iranian revolution really brought certain things home in terms of studying history and, and, and deciding as to what matters. Though those things change. I mean, another context, another development eventually will probably conceal and reveal differently. <laughs> the Iranian revolution brought up the relevance of uh, piety, religious traditions, and everyday religiosity, etc., mm -hmm. to those of us who try to understand societies in the present or in the past. But, but when I went to do my graduate work at McGill, I had decided that that, that really was missing, that I had to learn Arabic, which is already an ideologically loaded step in Turkey. Many of my friends then wrote, Jamal has become an Islamist. <laughs> this is 97, 78. You know, these kinds of associations, which were even stronger at the time. Uh, so, you know, taking a course on fuk, jurisprudence was a possibility, and I loved it. <laughs> taught by a more traditional Afghan scholar, though the Institute of Islamic Studies at McGill is not a traditional Islamic study. It's not a madrasa. But there were some opportunities of that sort as well, and I studied some Arabic and Sufism with Herman Landolt and interesting things that I wouldn't be able to do as an Ottoman history student in many other places. Mm -hmm. Then Shinasi Tekin was a great bonus of the fact that Gülru was a student here uh, at Harvard. And when she decided to take Ottoman Turkish with Shinasi, I asked if I could join them. And the, th the three of us basically read texts for two years. And I came to appreciate how a, philology, how a philological mind works. Shinasi was terrific. Yeah, and he, he, his most... Excited moments would be when he was when he found an opportunity to work on an etymology from the text that we were reading, and he would you know, develop it like a mathematical formula. It was a delight, and doing the work in the archives when it started again, seventy nine, nine, eighty, nineteen eighty, eighty one. The military junta in Turkey, political events always intervene. Uh, and I found that uh, in moments of severe political trauma and crisis in Turkey, the archives and the manuscript libraries have been wonderful refuge for many of us. For Not that I want to escape from the political reality, but you need some time to breathe on your own. And in that sense, for several hours in the day to immerse yourself in the material and trying to figure out if it's a wav or a re for <laughs> half an hour, that's wonderful. <laughs> that's just what you need <laughs> in general, but in those moments in particular. Anyway, I, I really started to appreciate the labor in the archives and the manuscript libraries, which is fortunately not gone, nor will it go, I imagine. It's for anyone, I guess, like yourselves or people listening to us, it's not a it's, it's a familiar pleasure. It's a familiar labor. It's a familiar ordeal. It's, a, it's all of those things. But uh, having been asking those 
what I thought were grand philosophical questions before, it was also an awakening <laughs> that, you know, to, 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 to do certain things well, you just need to figure out if it's a wow or a re. It's as simple <laughs> what, as what that. Were the, what were the grand philosophical questions you, you, you went when oh, thinking you were going to answer? Okay, I mean, this will sound silly maybe, but one of the big ones was the binary of idealism versus materialism. That was very big uh, in the late 60s, early 70s in Turkey and in many other places. Marxism of different kinds, of course. There's also the Balkan socialist uh, publications on Ottoman history. Anti-Marxism, the Cold War era discussions had their own uh, ramifications and uh, configurations in Turkey, but something of that sort. Idealism versus materialism was big. Another one was, do we do what we do to understand, or do we do what we do to change the world? That was part one of our interview with Jamal Kafadar. In part two, we'll pick up on that last theme of how history can help us both understand and, hopefully, change the world. We'll talk about Gezi, histories of place, and, don't worry, that plan for a movie about the life of Jim Sultan. Of course, as always, you can find more information, including a bibliography, on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook, where the community of listeners is over 35,000 strong. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. Until next time, take care.